Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I talked with Inderjeet Parmar about his book, Foundations of the American Century, the Ford, Carnegie, and Rockefeller Foundations in the Rise of American Power. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Inderjeet, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you very much for, for organizing this uh, podcast. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. I know that you are a little far away, so it's, it's great that we were able to coordinate our schedules on, on different time, uh, uh, different time periods. Um, I know a little bit about you, um, but, but maybe you can share a little bit about your background and, and where you are now and, and all the different, uh, a little briefly about all the different projects you're involved in. Okay, thank you. Um, well, at the moment, I'm a professor of international politics at City University London. I only began there last September. Um, for 21 years before that, I was Professor of Government at the University of Manchester. And uh, broadly, my research interests have been in uh, elites and foreign policy for the last 20 years, I guess, or so. And um, my books have basically pretty much focused on that. I'm also interested in Anglo-American relations. And um, so my previous books were basically on that. One on think tanks, which compared... Chatham House, the British uh, uh, think tank with Council of Foreign Relations. Um, and more recently, I've been working on the Obama presidency and uh, national security and uh, racial questions and chairing a network, a research network on that. So broadly, that's the kind of uh, thing that I've been doing for quite a while. Yeah, and, you know, and this book touches on so many of those things. It's a, it's a, it's a broad book in the sense of really covering a lot of, a lot of history, a lot of time. Um, but also focuses in on these some real important institutions. Um, before we begin uh, talking about the book, you mentioned very early on in the book that there really was only one other book-length treatment of the relationship between foundations and U.S. foreign policy. Why do you think this has been the case? Yeah, that's a good question, and I, it's a question I've kind of asked myself. Sometimes you think maybe you're just barking up the wrong tree and there's nothing much there. Um, but I found with the, the work that I've done that... Uh, I think partly it's to do with the fact that the foundations have a very good um, public image. In a way, their kind of self-image is what is broadly uh, it's understood to be as well. So not too many people are interested in institutions which do very, very good things. So I guess that keeps people away. Uh, the other thing I think is to do with the fact that political science, um, uh, by definition, almost defines philanthropic foundations out of politics. So you've got the political party, you've got pressure groups, but the foundations, if you like, fit somewhere in this sort of third sector, which is outside of politics and outside of the state, and they don't stand in the elections. Um, so I think in some respects it's to do with the way in which the political science discipline sees politics as well. Yeah, I agree. We, we, um, I had the chance to speak with Sarah Reckow a couple of weeks ago about her book on foundations in U.S. education policy, and I think she, in many ways, um, makes a similar point in her book about the um, U.S. domestic policy and the interest in foundations, and so I think her book and your book actually work really well together. Right. Um, 
you focus on these three industrial era icons, Ford, Carnegie, and Rockefeller. Yeah. Maybe you could briefly walk us through the biography of one of them and, and how that background is tied to the formation of their foundation. Right. Well, that's interesting. Um, in the book, I go through some of the biographical background on, uh, on each of them. But uh, I think broadly what one can say is with, say, for example, uh, Andrew Carnegie, um, you could say that these guys are highly innovative, they are entrepreneurs, they're broadly self-made, and they also innovate not only in terms of industrial processes, but also in terms of industrial organization. And by that I mean they're able to run national corporations, uh, which are vertically and horizontally integrated across a political system, uh, which is divided across a federal system, which is divided into states. But nevertheless, they're able to run what are broadly monolithic organizations. Now, what I argue in the book, really, is that that experience of networking over 40 elements or components of one large corporation, I think is the way in which the foundations themselves appear to have kind of uh, found their raison d'etre, that is, in network construction, such that you can leverage a large amount of power through a kind of decentralized form of organization, but with a very strong core in the middle. So in terms of biography, Andrew Carnegie you know, got some very big industrial contracts with the, uh, the northern uh, forces during the Civil War, uh, developed a new process for the production of steel, and very soon became the largest steel producer, really, I think, in the world. I think when he sold U.S. Steel in 1900, I think that company alone was producing more steel than pretty much any other, any other state in the world. So basically it's industrial innovation, organizational innovation, and the ability to transfer that uh, innovative idea to new forms of um, attempts at managing social change. These are, these are entrepreneurs who are growing up uh, in their businesses uh, in a period where the United States is changing very dramatically because of immigration, urbanization, industrialization. And as a result of that, there are new forces which are released, which um, to some extent are finding political expression. And I think what I argue in the book is that uh, these kind of industrial entrepreneurs are also become, if you, if you like, kind of social and political entrepreneurs as well by constructing a kind of scientific philanthropy fit for that time. Yeah, it also seems in your conclusions that you argue that they never really divorced themselves from this um, industrial ideology, that, that they, the, the foundations that they create, though philanthropic in nature, still have a deep belief system that, that, that undergirds them. We'll, maybe we'll get to that in just a little bit. But as you mentioned here, um, much of what these foundations do is to build institutions. Yeah. And so... Um, and, and Daniel Sedman Jones makes a similar case in his recent book on neoliberalism. Um, so, um, what are the important institutions that these foundations help to form, and, and how do these think tanks, institutions, and, and various associations play such a central role in the formation of foreign policy? Right. That's, uh, that's interesting. Um, well, basically, there's a whole number of different kinds of institutions that, I guess, under Underlying the construction of various institutions was a big goal, which was the idea that the United States uh, has become the most advanced power in the world, but it needs to punch its weight in global affairs. And the only way in which they can do that is really by building a number of institutions. First, 
the, the kind of uh, knowledge capacities and organizational capacities of the executive itself, the federal executive. So in that regard, then there's a kind of building up of the knowledge based on the research capacities of the State Department, for example, during, particularly during the Second World War, but also to some extent initially through the First World War as well, with the, a group called the Inquiry, which uh, went to Paris Peace Conference at the behest of Woodrow Wilson. But flowering from that really is an attempt to uh, create some think tanks, uh, like the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, public affairs organizations like the Foreign Policy Association and the Institute of Pacific Relations, which would then kind of disseminate this broad, broadly globalist ways of thinking. The other tier of it is really in the universities and the schools and colleges. And that's an attempt to, to get the, uh, the youth of America um, systematically thinking about the, the world as a whole. So um, international relations as a discipline, if you like, is born really in the late 20s into the 1930s, largely with um, large funds from the big foundations themselves. So with the think tanks and these uh, university institutions, effectively you get, begin to get the building up of a kind of an intellectual um, infrastructure for thinking about the United States and its position in the world and what kind of mindsets are necessary, if you like, to transform the United States from broadly parochial and inward-looking to one which looks outwards much more and is able to, as I say, punch its weight in world affairs. So as time progresses from the 20s, through to the 30s and 40s, you get a number of these kind of think tanks, public affairs organizations, uh, disciplines within the universities like international politics, international relations, but a bit later on area studies programs as well. So in effect, I think those are the kind of key things, and they're all networked in initially with one another, but also they're networked with the uh, elements of the federal executive. And then after the Second World War and into the Cold War, uh, the big area studies networks are are connected with uh, strategic countries overseas as well. So they often build um, universities or consolidate institutions which already exist in key countries. Uh, and then they set up a network or a circuit of movement of people, of ideas and of money between those, within that network, which I think has very powerful effects. What I was wondering is, is the degree to which there was consensus across foundations during this time period. Yeah. So, so you, you described the, the role of the foundations in, in Indonesia and in Chile and a number of different places. How much consensus was there between Ford, Carnegie, and Rockefeller in terms of the, their agendas, um, in terms of political change, in terms of governance? Was there wide agreement or, or were there um, uh, uh, divisions in terms of what, what type of American influence they saw as, as best and appropriate? Sure. Um, I guess I think there's quite a lot of correspondence between the foundation um, officers and so on from time to time. Uh, so there's a degree to which each one knows what the other is doing. Uh, but I think underlying their overall programs, they share a mindset which is broadly, you could call internationalist or liberal internationalist. Um, the Ford Foundation, although it, it's formed in the 1930s initially, it's largely a Detroit area institution. But after the Second World War, and by 1950, it becomes a national institution. So if you like, that bears much more the hallmarks of the Cold War and the Cold War mindset. But nevertheless, it is squarely behind the idea 
that the United States has a kind of democratic system, as a political system, as an economic system, and so on, effectively is ready to ready to lead the world in various ways. And I think that underlying view is shared across the three foundations. Now, within that, there clearly are areas of specialization that each one tends to focus on. But really, where I, what I've been, what I've seen is broadly a kind of division of labor across a range with a large number of overlaps. So I wouldn't really say that there are many disagreements. Certainly, I find too many disagreements between them. Yeah. Towards the end of the book, you move toward, uh, from the uh, Cold War period to the post-Cold War and, and even into the post-9-11 world. Mm. And you, you write a little bit about the efforts to address rising anti-Americanism. Sure. Um, so where do these foundations sit vis-a-vis -vis the Bush doctrine or mm. the Bush foreign policy agenda? How did they involve themselves during this most recent phase of foreign policy making? Right. Um, I think broadly... Um from the end of the Cold War, uh, these three big foundations broadly were wanted to, uh, or even before the, the end of the Cold War, they, they were already searching for ways in which the world was changing and how to conceptualize the world uh, as the Soviet Union's influence was waning and even with the rise of globalization. So I think by the end of the Cold War, in effect, they are searching for what the new world order might look like what a rationale for the United States continued kind of a globalism might look like. So I think there they, they kind of uh, helped to pioneer the rise of democratic peace theory. This uh, broad idea that democracies don't fight one another and from which people extrapolate the idea that should the world be democratized, then there's more likely to be peace and security and so on. So in that regard, the underlying kind of concepts of democracy promotion, which to a champion in the Clinton era, I would argue had a strong input initially, uh, but also in terms of developing the, um, the scholarly rigor with which that was applied um, through the 1990s. So when 9-11 comes along, what I suggest in the book is that a number of forces, like liberal internationalists, neoconservatives, and conservative nationalists had broadly come to an understanding that the idea that if you promote democracy, then there will be less likelihood of war. Now, that doesn't mean that they supported the Bush doctrine, but I think there, there were different points of view according to people's own ideas about the dangers of Iraq and, and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, the, the Bush um, administration, Condoleezza Rice and others, actually did take up the tenets of democratic peace um, as a way of justifying what they were doing in Iraq. Um, whereas prior to that, of course, there was the argument about weapons of mass destruction. But broadly speaking, the big foundation shared a view about democracy promotion. And secondly, and very closely allied to that, was something that Tony Smith, the Tufts, also argues, is that the, they also picked up on the idea that democratic transitions in undemocratic or non-democratic countries could be done relatively easily and quickly with new leaderships which are empowered to be in charge and to democratize. I think those two tenets were central to the 1990s, had a big role played in their development by foundation networks and were the underpinnings to some extent of the war in Iraq and the investigation of it. 
you end the book by talking about philanthrocapitalism. Yes. And, and some of your thoughts about the future. And so, so as we finish up, um, what do you see moving forward um, as, as China and India uh, are, are on the ascendancy and new foundations sit alongside Ford, Carnegie, and, and Rockefeller? Um, so briefly, what, is, what, do you, what do you see for the future? Well, you're right. There are many regions of the world, including those uh, of, the, of China and uh, South Asia, but also the Middle East and Latin America and elsewhere, new wealth is creating new forms of uh, philanthropy or corporate foundations. I think that's probably the best, better term. And great wealth does create these kinds of institutions. One interesting factor is, in addition to the regional character of these, there's also a kind of fairly num- fair number of uh, US-centered global networks of uh, corporate foundations as well, which are giving advice to many of these uh, philanthropies uh, about how to set up, how to do philanthropy, based on the American experience. So to some extent, there's an attempt, I think, possibly to, to mold or to shape or to determine or influence the direction of development of some of these philanthropies. But of course, there's going to be a much more of a nationalistic bent to those Indian and Chinese and other philanthropies as well. The other area I think which is really important is the fact of people like Bill and Melinda Gates entering the world of the corporate foundations has injected a very large amount of new money into them and also has made them far more market orientated than they used to be. So just if you like, uh, the, the big three foundations were products of their time and in effect what they were doing was in a country which had a relatively weak federal executive, they were attempting to bolster it to, in order to better solve the various problems of that time, the found corporate philanthropy or the philanthrocapitalists of today are the products of their own time as well. And that's a time where the market is in the ascendant. And in effect, they are often effectively championing market uh, forces even more. So even in their own sort of philanthropic, philanthropic endeavors, uh, performance targets, um, indicators of uh, which you would use to judge businesses by, uh, quick returns, uh, quick profits, if you like, are much more central to it. The final thing I would say is that although China and India are rising, um, certainly with some of the work I've done, begun to do on, on China and Chinese civil society, and if you like, China today is undergoing rapid social, economic, and industrial change. Its position in the world is rapidly changing. And to some extent, the, the problems of China today are not dissimilar to some of the problems of the United States in the very late 19th and into the early 20th century. That is a country which is more powerful uh, as, a, as an economic power than its global role actually uh, and can be, but seeking in a way to become much more assertive on the global stage as well. And I think here it's interesting that there's quite a lot of uh, Ford and other foundations which have been active in China since the 1980s at the invitation of the Beijing government uh, to try to establish a new kind of civil society there. Largely state-oriented, I must say, but it is trying to establish a sort of civil society and broaden out the, the possibilities of politics in that country. I learned a lot from the book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Foundations of the American Century, the Ford, Carnegie, and Rockefeller Foundations, The Rise of American Power, was published uh, in 2012 by Columbia University Press. It's available widely. 
Energy, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you too. You're very welcome.